Hello, my name is Jamie Sherin-Cohen, and I will be having a conversation with Amara Jones for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is April 16th, 2019, and this is being recorded at the CUNY Graduate Center. Welcome, Amara. Thanks you for interviewing me and for asking me to sit down and tell you whatever I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Um, can I start by just asking you to introduce yourself in whatever way feels resonant today? Um, yes, my name is Amara Jones. We've covered that. <laughs> I am um, a journalist and um, intersectional news producer. Um, I I guess top of mind right now is my project Translash, which is a four-part docuseries on what it is like to be trans, specifically a trans person of color at a time of social backlash. We just released episode three on Friday, so just days ago, so it's top of mind. Um, along with a whole series of other things. Um, and I also have a show on free speech television called The Last Sip, um, which is a half-hour news program aimed at centering historically marginalized communities in the news that is on hiatus right now. I am a fellow in residence at the New York Women's Foundation, and I'm on the board of AVP, and I live in Brooklyn. Cool. What's AVP? Oh, the Anti-Violence Project. Um, in New York City. Thanks. Sounds like you're pretty busy. I am. But it's good. It beats the alternative. Mm-hmm. It beats the alternative. Yeah. Um, when did you come to New York? You mean to live or mm-hmm. like the first... Either okay. way. The first time I came to New York, I think I was like 12 or 14. <clears throat> I grew up in Atlanta and my... Um, Godmother, who's also my cousin, lived in um, Danbury, Connecticut. And so her promise to me um, was that I could come to stay with her during the summer. And a part of that would be an excursion in New York City. So we did both of those things. And so the first time I came to New York was then. I then came to New York for college. Um, When I was 18, I went to Columbia. Then I left and then went to Washington, D.C. for several years, of London and then Washington, D.C. And then I came back to New York to live, live um, in 2001. So I have a long relationship with New York City. Mm -hmm. Do you remember your first impression? What year was it when you first visited, do you think? You're 12. Do the math. (laughs) The late 80s? Uh 80s. Six or something like that. Um, oh, my impression. Hot, busy, stimulating, interesting. I liked it. And that fueled your interest in returning to go to college here? God, how did I... How did I come to college? Yeah, it was really weird. So I realized that I didn't want to go to college in the South because I grew up in Atlanta, as I said. Um, So I didn't want to stay there. So all of the colleges essentially that I applied to were not, were all above the Mason-Dixon line. And um, a part of that was, was Columbia, which I didn't even really know about except for my roommate at this like at this um, program in Georgia called Governor's Honors, where they take um, people who do well in college. I'm sorry, do well in high school, and then put us all together in a college setting. Actually, for I think about a month. I think we were there for. <clears throat> and so my roommate at the time, um, Amit, told me about Columbia. I was like, I'm going to apply here, blah blah blah. And so then. I looked into it and I was like, oh, this place looks cool. So then I applied and then um, I didn't know if I was going to come. And um, because when I firstly came, Columbia wasn't New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not in New York City, really. You know, it is, it is an ivory tower, you know, located in Manhattan. So I was like, oh, this is weird. And the the dynamics there were totally different. 
Um, but then I got locked out of the room that I was staying in for my like guest weekend, and I actually interacted with real students, not just um, the people that we were supposed to be sequestered with, which were the other people that had been invited for prospective student weekend and the adults that we were supposed to interact with because that did not feel very New York. Um, and then, you know, um, got locked out and then everyone was super nice and everyone was from all these different backgrounds. And so because they found out I, were, I was a prospective student and locked out, <coughs> excuse me, they ended up like hanging out with me. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, this is more of what I'm looking for. This is what I want. And this feels like New York to me. And so um, I accepted and said, this is where I'm going to go. And the person that told me all about it ended up also being my college roommate. So that's how I got to Columbia. And then I left afterwards because I, ha I was like, you know, I did really well. And, but I didn't want to stay in New York immediately because New York at 21 is hard, right? Like, ugh, you know? Um, and everyone I know who stayed, like that first year or so is rough, but no one ever tells you that regardless of your choice, the first couple of years after college are rough. Like they're really crap years and you wonder why you did any of it, right? Like I'd say 21 to 23 or 24 you're just not happy <laughs> and um no one ever no one ever tells you that you know no one ever tells you at graduation this is as good as it's gonna get for a couple of years you know um and um i was like okay i'm gonna go to graduate school because i'm not gonna stay in new york so i went to london and then i went to dc and then i was ready to come back to new york you know um after all of that mm -hmm. When did you first connect with um, trans people or trans communities in New York? Yeah, it's hard, right? Because like, probably in, around my last year of college, because <clears throat> I started to go out like, I started to really go out in New York City. You know, I hadn't done that really before because I was a very serious student. You know, I was very studious. Um, and I did well in college and I liked being bookish, right? I was bookish and I liked being bookish. And so <laughs> that's what I did. Um, yeah, it's one of the things about Columbia, which is weird, that everyone is actually super nerdy, but... Um, everyone works really hard to hide it, which is an interesting dynamic. Like everyone tries to be really cool, but on Friday nights they're studying. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, probably, so in my last, so that, uh, in terms of my like, I, so my gender identity, like gender is for everyone is a journey, right? It's just that my gender identity, because it was different, my gender gen journey started differently. But I always tell people all the time that, you know, even if you, even as you are cis and accept the gender in which you are, figuring out what that gender means to you is a journey, right? You don't, you know, um, I see that a lot in my cousins who are cis women, and but they try on lots of different masks, you know, they're 14 and 15, and they're just, every day on Instagram, they literally post a different type of picture with a different look because they're trying to figure out what their gender is, right? And we don't frame it like that, but everyone goes through that stage. Our journey, my journey just started later. So I started, I had to unravel both gender and sexual orientation. So <clears throat> I think my, I started going out because I was like, oh, I'm attracted to men. So I, then I started to go out to clubs. And then if you go out to clubs, especially like big clubs that existed um, in that time in like the mid to late 90s um, in, in NYC and were here pretty much until like 2006 or seven. So club culture stayed here for a while, starting back in the 70s, I guess. Um, but you could still see it 
you know, up until 10 years ago. Um, in those types of clubs, there was at that time, everyone, right? There was a mixture of different types of queer people. So my first interaction with trans people was when I started clubbing, right? And then my first sustained interaction with the trans community or anyone trans was um, my friend was it was through my friend Drea when she began to transition. Oh, good lord, two thousand and four, maybe. Um, so. Um, Yes, that's the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So generally, culturally, in my own experience and seeing and been, being with, um, and then actually I had a friend who, no, I, that's, and then another friend of mine was trans in um, DC, but again, we also met through the club scene, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we were friends. And then when I came back to New York again. So it's interesting that the entry point was through um, was through socializing but <clears throat> and through finding community space in clubs and bars. But as I've learned more and researched the history of queer communities, that's the way it's been for hundreds of years. Yeah. That's the way it starts. Mm -hmm. um, I guess mm -hmm. when did things shift in terms of finding or connecting with trans community um, in different contexts or or were there kind of discrete areas of your life that you were kind of negotiating? Yeah, I think that I think that that's right. I think there were discrete areas of my life that I was negotiating. I think like I said, I've had I had trans friends pretty much from the time of the late 90s, I would say, right? Um, and so but that was through social and social circles. Um, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, it accelerated the more that I went on my own gender journey. Um, so I think it really picked up steam like four or five years ago, like in terms of the full range of trans community and experience, right? So activist community, artistic community, government, policy, politics, so like the mainstream kind of center of gravity. Um, four or five years ago when I dated someone trans, mm -hmm. you know, and so then that was a big shift going from people who were my friends, right, that I did hang out with and we went to things with and, um, and bonded personally to being in a large community, that was it. And then um, spurred by my transition as my own transition, within that same time period accelerated that. So I think, I mean, it's just tracks really the same. Like the more I moved into my own <clears throat> gender identity, the more I moved into the heart of community um, and the heart of community issues. But not all trans people do that, right? Because there are tons of thousands, tens of thousands of trans people across the country who the goal is to live within um, their gender identity, sort of unmolested. Um, there's a friend of mine who, who lives here um, and he's trans, he's a trans man, and he was like, I realize I increasingly identify as a heterosexual man. Hmm. And so since he's made that shift in his mind, he's in increasingly less and less a part of trans community. Um, and I think that the vast majority of trans people live their lives like that. Yeah, there's certainly no, like, there doesn't have to be a correspondence between being trans and dedicating your life to right. the trans struggle. Right? That's right. That's right. Or being in community with lots of other trans people. Right, right. Um, but you have made a series of decisions that have positioned you as somewhat of a spokesperson. Maybe not spokesperson is the right word, but certainly you cover trans issues in the media. Um, do you want to speak more about how that kind of evolved maybe out of your previous work in the media? Or? Yeah, it's weird. I told, I was, I, I was on a 
panel earlier this week at Mother Jones and we were talking about how like excuse me that for me um because I'm studious and bookish that like I always liked studying other things right and depersonalizing it and that kind of translated to my career in journalism which occurred after I had spent time in politics and after I had spent time in corporate media for a while and um, and so like I you know I liked covering other you know like and I, I would constantly I constantly wrote about people even if I was one of those people as those people um, because that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to have a neutral voice you're supposed to be objective you're supposed to do all of that stuff that you get trained to do um to, you know, to be a serious, rigorous analyst and research all that stuff. Um, but then as I told them that during the Trump administration, I realized that I was the subject. Mm-hmm. I was the news. I couldn't know. I no longer could talk about um, a whole host of issues in a way that was dispassionate because we live in a time where the government, which is supposed to protect our rights, is actively targeting us. And as a journalist, we take seriously our role as guardians of um, rights and the Constitution by being a check on that power. But for me, I would I realized, th- and those things then ca- came together in my own personal experience. And so I could no longer really, I can no longer, and I cannot be detached, right? It's impossible. What I, what I have to still do is I have to tell the truth, right? And sometimes um, that truth is 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 personally beneficial and sometimes not. So, or sometimes our community is gonna like it or sometimes it isn't. So we were just talking about an article that I'm working on where um, you know, a lot of trans men recently celebrated a decision by Morehouse College in Atlanta to admit trans men, but it comes at the expense of trans women. I have to tell that truth, right? I still have to tell the truth, but I can't be detached anymore and so I think I have felt to come back to the origin of your question I rather more compelled to do it than a series of like I'm going you know I'm going to go out and do this like I feel like I have to do this because it is news and then I'm a part of the community so I'm the news as well I'm part of the news and not that many people who are trans have microphones you know, um, and that's a, that's not good because the less people know us, I think the more it exposes us to harm because it exposes the idea of who we are to manipulation mm-hmm. by people who actually do want to do us harm. And they're able to manipulate the ignorance on the part of other people like through bathroom bills, like these people want to, you know, come more. Um, to um, be able to manipulate that ignorance. And so if we have microphones, we have to tell people who we are. And we have to be really conscious about um, fighting ignorance. And because I really do believe that we as trans people hold a lot of the keys to the future in terms of the way in which we have to think about society and individuals and gender and fluidity, like, I really do believe that we kind of are the way forward. And so we have to talk and we have to tell our stories and we have to be, or rather, I feel the need to be, as a result, visible. Yeah. So it's as much a product of the time than anything, I think. Can you recall a specific, like, shift <clears throat> that you experienced? I mean, you mentioned the Trump administration is certainly... Oh, but um, a, yeah, I guess like a point at which um, you learned something new or saw a different way to like create media that um, kind of integrated your personal experience and the um, issues you're. Recovering. Yeah, I think that that started actually when I started doing journalism. So I started writing a column initially for color lines that then changed into more articles for The Nation and Mike and other places. And I think I have an interest in all forms of progressive justice. 
And it's what I really care about. It's kind of the thing that I am most animated by. And it comes from my values and type of the society that I want to see and that I want to help build. And so I think from the beginning, I've been lucky in that I've been able to create and write the type of work that I wanted because it was what I cared about, right? I never had to like cover Broadway or something or, you know, get assigned. Some people are journalists just as journalists, so they move around to different beats, right? <clears throat> they'll be like the Tokyo correspondent, and then they'll go cover Wall Street, and then they'll go be the bureau chief in Atlanta and cover, you know. Um, I'm not terribly interested in that, you know. I'm interested in covering the things that I think matter and are underreported from a progressive standpoint that allows us to live in a society that works for everybody by informing people. So um, I think that's what drives me and that's from the beginning I've been able to do that. I'm curious about, um, I feel like most social justice oriented journalism is not as fiscally rewarded uh, or supported. Correct. <laughs> um, that's so I'm that's curious accurate. About, yeah, I'm curious about your experience um, around that. Oh, it's a disaster. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even going to pretend. It's a disaster. Um, yeah, there were so many times when I felt like, why am I doing this? Um, this doesn't make any sense. I need to just be smart and go get a damn job somewhere like making real money and taking care of myself and not worrying about anything else but so far I've that I've proved too stubborn <laughs> and the way that I've done it is I've somehow been able to cobble together enough support from foundations to be able to do the work that I'm doing we'll see um, but that's kind of been my way is to get individual support so I can do the work that I do but there's no infrastructure for us and that's why the news looks like the way it does it's the way why we don't have as much societal change because we don't have enough new and different stories that are really provoking people to think differently we're not providing enough examples about different ways that we could do stuff we're not telling enough different stories so we got the same society and so the fact that it's under we're under rewarded is a massive barrier to social change and this is kind of one of my evangelical um sort of comments and stances that I talk about all the time um, but I think it's really key and I just don't understand why people don't get that um, I don't I just literally don't I don't um, I don't why you think the New York Times is gonna rescue you I don't understand you know why we believe that you know cable news is gonna be the answer to everything if we could just if Fox went away and we had just CNN and MSNBC do we really think society would be radically different do you understand what I mean? Like, imagine it. Like, those stale-ass perspectives and mainstream voices. So, I am I am super happy that I've been able to do it for as long as I've been able to do it. I really hope that I'm able to continue to do that because I think that it's important. Um, one of the things I'm really obsessed with is trying to find a way to build an infrastructure so that more people can do it. Because it, it doesn't, if I, even if I can do it for, you know, the next 40 years, it doesn't matter because it's just me. You can't be, change doesn't come with one person. It comes with an ecosystem, mm -hmm. a building, resonant support. Um, I don't believe in one person changing everything. I think one person helps to change, helps others to change everything, right? Like, that's the way that it has to happen. Um, but it's not rewarded and it's particularly brutal in this town because this is the capital of media of global media right in new york every media company in the world is here quite literally and um and those people are pretty well rewarded um and then everyone else who wants to do anything different are not and yeah it's not, that's not fun, but 
I keep plugging away because I believe that what I do is necessary and I do believe and I do believe that there's a way to do it and to make it work and to have more people do the same. Um, one example I use for the last sip all the time is that when I went to foundations, also New York is the capital of foundations, when I went to foundations, like passing the hat, being like, please give me some money so I can make this little show. Um, when I first went, everyone was like, um, well, we don't really understand why we need like different types of media because we have a black president and we're about to have the first woman president ever. <laughs> No one ever says that to me anymore, <laughs> right? I don't get that at mm -hmm. all. Like, so I think that there are these kind of cracks. They're not, you know, they, they need to be more, but there are cracks in the change where people have the notion that maybe they, you know, we need to experiment and do things differently. Um, but I think, you know, it's really important. And um, it's really important for a trans person, like, to be doing this work. Um, it's vital. It's really, really vital. And I guess I'm saying that because the more I do it, the more I learn that. So when Translash came out last week, I went to this, um, I went to a birthday party of a, of another trans person, Devin Norrell. Oh no. It's like, and um, there were a bunch of people who showed up, <clears throat> you know, trans and non-conforming. A lot of them I didn't know, but oh, just over the weekend they had seen it. Somehow people were like, my friends, I'm in your video or whatever. And people spoke about um, how healing it was. They sent it to other family members so that they could understand their experience. One person who was in Translash was there as well. And she said that her aunts and other people in her family had called her to apologize for the way in which they, they, they treated her because this last episode was on family and the way that trans fa that families accept or don't accept their trans members. Um, and so I realized that people are hungry for images that match the reality of their lives. Um, and so it's kind of important. Can you speak about the genesis of that project? Yes. Um, this, go this goes to a lot of the, the things that you and we've spoken about so far. So it's like an interesting way to build. Um, so I'd gotten the money to do the last sip. We did the last sip for eight weeks. It was only meant to be a pilot to show what we could do. We definitely built a totally different news audience. So the average age of the average person who watches cable news is 60, um, is 62 and they're a white man. Um, our audience was, we had 100,000 views and downloads over eight weeks. We didn't have any marketing budget or anything. It was all through word of mouth. And <clears throat> um, two thirds of our audience was between the ages of 18 and 35 and half were women and people of color. Like it was just totally different. So it was like, you can build something. It was the, it was an example that you can build something differently if you structure it differently. So in the end, we had like a tiny bit of money left and it wasn't enough to do a show, but we could do something else. And the four people that worked, that were the core team of the show, um, we had one of our last calls and I was like, what should we do? And I had all these ideas, like they had nothing to do with me. I was like, let's go follow Stacey Abrams around Georgia. Let's go, you know, let, do we have enough money to go to the border to report on, on trans women, like being um, separated? The answer to that was no. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, let's, you know, I had all these different ideas and someone said, you should do a project about being black and trans and transitioning right now. And then I was like, have you gone to YouTube? Everyone does that and no one's gonna care, right? That's what, that was literally what I said. I was like, no one's gonna care about that. But I said, okay, we have one more meeting. So everyone think about it and then let's think about what their ideas are. So we did our last call and then I said, okay, what do people got? You know, what do you got in your ideas? And then they were like, we think we ought to do your, that, your story. And then I went around and I was like, okay, I'm going to vote on it. Let's vote on it. And I was outvoted. You voted against it. I did. And I was outvoted. And it's so strange because for so many ways, in so many ways, 
you're taught as a trans person and especially as trans people of color, but I think all trans people, um, that somehow that like your voice doesn't matter, that like your story isn't interesting, no one's gonna care, you know, all this stuff. And it's because we, we condition ourselves to hide, you know, throughout our lives. And so if you hide enough and if you hide your voice or you can't express your voice, on some level, you interpret that on a subconscious in a, in a subconscious way to think that your voice isn't important, right? And I felt that my voice was only important to the degree that I used it to amplify other people, but not that my voice for myself was important. And um, I was like, okay, well, we'll okay, we'll do it because a part of also being smart sometimes is is being smart enough to know when you ought to listen to other people, right? Like you have to go, okay, let me listen to these people because they might actually know something. So we started and we, I had, there was no, there was no plan for where we are right now, right? Like this is all making it up as we went along. But as the project has gone on over the ye- over the last year, the need for the project has only become more apparent. Hmm. You know, because I think that we put out the second episode not long after the leak from the New York Times about the memo that is pending. It still is pending. Everyone thinks that it's gone away. But I spoke to someone that I know in D.C. about the um, about the anti-trans memo where they want to exclude trans people from the Civil Rights Act of 1965 to remove all government protections. Um, and I spoke to someone, yeah, a couple months ago. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, is this thing dead? And they were like, no, this thing isn't dead. They're just looking for the right moment to drop it. They've got too much other stuff going on with immigration and stuff, and they can't find everything. And so they're just holding it for the moment that they can drop it. No. Um, so we released the second episode around the time that came out, and I was like, oh, my God, this is really important. Like, we have to do this. Um, so I guess... The project has taught me as I've gone along, I'm really feeling this, has taught me as I've gone along that my voice is important, that I'm important, that our stories are important, they have to be told, they're vital for our survival. Um, Because I was also on a panel at the National Women's Studies um, Association and there was a Black Trans Futures panel who would have thought that there'd be like a radical panel. Mm -hmm. But I I went and I found that they're all like radical. The whole conference is totally (laughs) that way. So go to the New York Women's Studies Association conference if you can. Um, And one of the things that came up that people began to be really stumped about Black Trans Futures is that they were like, well, because the only stories that we hear mostly about black trans women are about death, we don't actually know what the future looks like. And then I was like, oh shit, we have to change that. Like we have to, in order to live, we have to imagine a future. You know, and I even had to tell people this weekend, they were like, I'm so tired of, you know, I every day I wake up, I'm grateful for, I'm always afraid every day, blah, 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 blah. And I just looked at the group that I was talking to and I was like, we're gonna have a future. You know, we have to think that we're going to have a future in order to have a future. And legitimating our voices, our experiences, our lives is is really essential to that. Yeah, it makes me think about the importance of having trans people representing trans people and also thinking about trans audiences which i don't think is often the top of people's that's right concerns, right that's exactly right um and i mean it's so un- ironic right now because we live in an age where trans is so monetized it, it, all of a sudden monetized right the whole thing is if you are a brand and you want to be cool then you need to have a trans person Walk down, walk down the runway, sell your stuff, have a television show. Be, you know, trans is monetized, mm-hmm. but monetized in such a way as one, it doesn't really do anything about affirming our humanity and making sure that we have a society where we can have full rights because we don't have that yet. Um, and secondly, the benefits of that accrue to massive corporations 
from which trans people are largely excluded from employment for a whole host of reasons. You know, it's like the exotification is divorced from our reality, and as long as it can be commodified, that people are okay with that. While at the same time, I know that visibility is important, so it is important for trans people to see themselves in a commercial or on a runway or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing is that we have to create a world and create images where trans people can see themselves on the runway. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not just a trans person, because that still makes it seem like it's a thing. It's still too out of your grasp. You know, we have to show trans people being regular as fuck so that then regular as trans people can be like, I can have a regular life. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I tell people I love Pose. I loved it from the beginning. I love everybody on it. I met, I was lucky enough to meet the cast once. I love them. They're really special people. Like, if you've met in New York, you know, you meet you can come across famous people all the time, um, like on the subway or whatever, you know? I saw Kevin Bacon on the subway once with his kids. <clears throat> and so, you, so celebrity isn't necessarily um, something that's as enthralling for New Yorkers because it's, it's around. Um, but when I met them, they're special people. Like they literally are special people. And I was like, okay, no, there's something different about all these, this entire cast. But at the same time, um, you know, trans, I'm sorry, um, um, Poe still takes place out of our current space and time. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes mm-hmm. place, it's not still not now, right. right? It's, we have to go 40 years ago or 30 years, no, not 40, 30, it's in the 90s now. So like 30 years ago, 20 something years ago. Um, and alongside of things like Pose, we also need to be telling stories about people right now. Yeah. It's so funny, can I just go on a riff? It's hilarious to me on things like Pose where we were talking a little bit before about how club culture and how it was really important for me as my first exposure to trans people and all the rest of it. Um, how like there are large parts of that culture that even Pose can't replicate. Mm. So the peer, there are no peers in New York that still look like the peer. And I went on that peer and I met people on that peer. I had sex on that peer. I shouldn't say that, but this is oral history, so we have to be truthful. (laughs) I had sex on that peer, you know, like, you know, it was massive, it was asphalt a massive pier with asphalt going down the sides and front. And then it had this this concrete and like metal barrier going down the middle, right? And like, there are all these things. Um, but the piers in New York have all been absorbed by the city in order to gentrify the waterfront to make it more appealing for developers. And so even a television show like Pose can't actually replicate what it was what it looked and felt like at that time because it's been so remapped by capitalism and so many parts of that history have been have been erased and that's a huge part of the show as well is how is the exclusion of trans people from the history and so trans spaces can't even be maintained i mean you know like honestly that pure ought to be a um ought to be, should have been rather a historic landmark. They shouldn't have been able to do anything. They should have just been able to gentrify all the other peers because it's not like there's any shortage of them and leave that one intact, you know, alone. But that's not, it. like, it wasn't seen as, as valuable and it's not seen as valuable. And trans kids aren't still seen as valuable. The experience of young trans people in New York ironically is not that different from the show and in some ways might be slightly worse because the places and spaces are even smaller and fewer mm-hmm. uh, so and ballroom as i ballroom was also it was also important for me um I, t- I talked about club culture but i also didn't talk about balls my you know like seeing balls and all the rest of it how that was also important for me as well um so, cause it was the first opening of like fresh air and the ability to be able to see 
things differently. And so, um, yeah, that just tapped a whole vein in my in my memory and my in my experience because with po- well no my experience is not part of pose my po- experience comes right after even this season in the early 90s so my my experience would start probably five years later but there was enough of that where where i know or i, I had some like inkling or experience with it and so just thinking about um the parallels between here and now and young trans kids actually fought to maintain their presence on the pier. I'm talking about, this was like 2007 or 2008 um, and were deliberately pushed out. During this time, there were still spaces. Yeah, I feel that show sparks so many, so many But yeah, your point to it not representing, or there being a lack of representation of the present and also possible futures. Right. Okay, so another thing, let me just riff on. (laughs) So um, I'm a huge, I love sci-fi. I love sci-fi, fantasy, all the rest of it. You name it, I'm really into it. Um, There are no trans characters on Game of Thrones. Why not? You know, there are trans people in medieval times. Um, and it's a medieval fantasy, so even if there weren't, you can <laughs> fantasize about it. It's why the word exists. Um, Star Trek, the new Star Trek. I love. The new Star Trek has everyone. I even was really happy to see a disabled character like um, in Star Trek. There are no trans, so there are no trans people in the future. They're none. We don't exist. Literally, we don't exist in the future. Um, in the new Star Trek, I'm talking about the one that was started in like 2017, like mad. No, last year, 2018. Like we're talking terribly, terribly, terribly recent. Um, yeah, same thing with like Star Wars. So there are no trans people in the future. We don't tell trans stories in the present. It's no wonder that young trans people and trans people overall struggle with imagining ourselves as a part of having a future and that means that we don't have full participation that makes me think about intergenerational friendships and collaborations to that um yeah, sometimes younger trans non-binary people don't necessarily have older people in their lives that they can look to or mm-hmm. model themselves after. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's one of the really important things about the uncovering um, through the work of um, Tourmaline and her um, work on um, Marsha Clark, Happy Birthday, Marsha, and then subsequently, whatever the relationship is, the ultimate film that uh, done by David French of Who Killed Marsha P. Johnson. Um, Because for me, both of those, hearing those two trans women who changed world history be able to speak for themselves and to hear their experience has given so much context in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true for Miss Majors, who I've never met, but I've seen her talk, right? I've seen um, their ability to talk. And honestly, a Sylvia Rivera clip is one of the things that sparked a huge notion behind the latest episode of Translash because we, we talk about the three different types of families. So blood families, kinship ties, and then chosen family, um, and the way in which those interact for trans people, and especially how when our blood families fail, um, that we have kinship and we create chosen family, and that that chosen family then becomes the basis for activism, right? Mm -hmm. So what actually helped to drive Stonewall that day was the relationship that Marsha and Sylvia had, right? And just to hear Sylvia talk about um, you know, um, this one clip, I was trying to find it outside because I asked her, and I was like, do you know where I can find this? And I think only David French has the ability to use it, so I couldn't 
included in my work, mm-hmm. but um, where Sylvia talks about how whenever she would be go into depression and feel suicidal, the only person who knew when that was gonna happen was Marsha. And the only person that she would open the door for when she was in that state was Marsha. Right, so in that that chosen family, that kinship, that accountability that they had to each other, like Marsha helped keep Sylvia alive. And that's a huge reason why we have why there was any change in gay rights or anything on trans rights at all is because of that relationship, right? That was right. built on this this thing. And, you know, to see all of the old clips of Sylvia talking about and Sylvia being booed at the first gay rights march, right? So the thing that she helped to create the crowd to literally turn on her. Yeah. Um, I think it helps give context of, for me, that as trans people, as trans people in New York, as a trans woman of color, that we do have history and that we have to assert that history and that that history gives us strength and that part of the reasons why we continue to be marginalized is because we were pushed out, so we can't be pushed out, right? Imagine if gay rights, it would have been hard, but had kept trans rights in the mix instead of hijacking the whole thing and using it as a vehicle to advance their rights, right, while leaving everybody else out behind, everybody it would have been radically different. And so that intergender, in, even though they're not still present, that the intergenerational dialogue, I think, is essential. And then to the extent that there are people alive that are in dialogue with older trans and gender nonconforming people, it, that's also essential. As a media maker, do you, um, I guess you're talking about visibility in terms of, um, I don't know, maybe more in terms of like hyper visibility, like uh, a kind of like superficial, like, hey, got my trans person, like, and like the relationship to monetizing that versus maybe a more true or holistic visibility that is um, self presented or um, actually relating life experiences um, I don't really know where I'm going with this but uh, yeah I guess in your own work um, how do you how do you strategize around creating work that is different than like what we're seeing on in TV or um, on runways yeah, I think that all my work so far just comes from a set of values where I believe in inclusion. So one of the things I told my team is I said, okay, well, if I do Translash, the way I'm going to do it is I'm not going to do it to only tell my story. I'm going to use it to tell the stories of other trans people. So I'm going to use me as a vehicle and as a tour guide into this larger thing. And so that's the way we did it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way that we do it and every episode folds out like that like it starts with me doing something me being like willed into surgery or me do something and then we use it to like widen keep widening the lens right um on other people or the experiences the broader community where the country is like we we use it to open up i think that comes from my values and i think i try to stick with that um that we have to be as inclusive as possible um, and we have to tell stories that are grounded as possible. We have to do so in a way that really encourages democracy. Like in a, in a way, I don't have a, some people, the way that they use notoriety is to brand themselves as a singular thing. And that's it. They brand themselves as themselves. And then people buy that thing, right? And I think I am trying, I mean, I don't have the option right now because I don't, no one's, I don't have like, no one's asking me to do shit. But, (laughs) but, but I think my, 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 my idea is like, not to try to become a commodity, but 
to become like a door opener. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, the idea of using a personal story as a vehicle feels very connected to black feminist thought in general, right? Mm. Just like, um, think of like Audre Lorde and like Sidia Hartman's talking about, like, I'm talking, I'm, I'm, referring to my own story as a way to like open up um, mm-hmm. versus just like I think I'm really important or singular or like um, which is a very like white western right. <laughs> concept right of like I'm just me right right <laughs> right um, yeah and then the the ultimate goal of becoming me is to become a commodity right that can be bought and sold and monetized in the marketplace. You know, that's why it gets, it's because it's ultimately, it has to be reductive. You can't be, you only have to be you if you're going to be moved around like a product. Do you know what I mean? Like, if they're going to be like, mm, like, this is really bad, but, um, but like, um, yeah, a lot of people just get turned into products. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, I want to make enough money to be able to do the work that I want to do and to help other people do that, but the goal isn't to become raised above so that I can be sold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, with... You mentioned before the um, the lurking uh, Trump memo or whatever about trans people, and it does seem also like you're really looking at the big picture and not just like, oh, trans people are like really in right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, there's, it's, yeah, um, it's not all glitter and. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not all glitter. Um, and like those companies, they'll like walk somewhere. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't it be really powerful if they were like, the company was like, okay, we're going to have all trans models and then we're going to start a, you know, trans internship program for, for people who wanted, for trans, young trans people who want to do fashion. Like that's actually changing something, mm-hmm. you know, like, and we're going to pay them and we're going to teach them. That's different. Like, that's shifting. Representation is only commodification. And so, then I mean, there are a lot of, you know, people who are becoming, and actually, it's interesting, like, India Moore, who's one of the stars of Pose, she's struck, she actively talks about this struggle, right? Like, how I'm being sold as this beauty standard of womanhood overall. But, you know, and she has a deal with Louis Vuitton, all this other type of stuff. And she, but she's also like, but in some ways I still, I don't identify as a woman. I identify as gender nonconforming. And that's not what people want from me because they want to be able to say, look at this beautiful trans woman who, you know, has a universal standard of looks and we should all, you know, and that how there's this inherent, this inherent, and then there's an inherent tension. Mm-hmm. I keep returning in my mind to the comment you made about um, the the link between a kind of social support system and political work or political action or activism. Um, I'm not sure, like what I, I feel like there's there's more there that I would love to unpack. Um, Like, how did you experientially un- come to understand that? Mm, mm. Um, it was from my time in politics and in corporate media. So I went from like the Clinton, last two years of the Clinton White House, and then I went to go work at Viacom. I shouldn't bang on the table because this is an audio project. <laughs> um, 
And so um, one of the things that you learn is that you learn how, from those experiences I learned, let me just say, I learned that in order for either people or ideas or products to sell through, you have to create an entire ecosystem which will create enough noise and attention for those things to break through. Mm. It's true about a candidate. It's true about an idea. It's true about um, products, you know. Um, I remember, you know, there was going to be the special release of The Godfather um, and also a new SpongeBob, these two things. And like at Viacom, they, you know, we were relentless about using everything that we had and deploying everyone that we had with the same message in different ways to get people to understand that this was the new date for the Rugrats movie, period. And I mean months, I mean hundreds of people, I mean in the many tens of millions of dollars. Um, and it was all focused for this, to get this one notion out. So if that has to happen for like a movie, <laughs> If that has to happen for a candidate, that's what happens with candidates, right? They create these ecosystems that allow themselves to break through, that include policy people, it includes messaging people, it includes fundraising people, it includes contacts in the press, it includes uh, working with the corporate community, it includes people in nonprofits. Like they create an entire thing around them that at the mo right moment pushes them to break through and to move out into public consciousness, right? Um, so, and I saw it, and I saw it work time and time again, right? And so then I think it, I learned from that and absorbed from that, that if we want to do the same thing for people who are historically marginalized, for our ideas, for a better world, we have to find a way to do the same thing. Right, it's gonna be in a different way because we don't have we don't have that mm -hmm. thing, but it's finding a way about creating these ecosystems of interlocking alliances and responsibilities and agendas that are able to push things, and that's what we have to really figure out. And a huge part of that is communication. And it's so weird because like progressive people, a lot of times don't really know a lot about communications, don't think that it's important, scoff at media, scoff at the press or whatever. And I'm like, if the only people who know or care about what you're doing are in this room, that's a problem. And some people get off on being the marginal, what is it, what did they call them? Um, get off on being sort of marginalized, like get off on the idea of being like in the know but marginalized. Like we have the secret for the change of society and only us can bring that about and we can't really do the other stuff that other people do to change because that's somehow tainted. It's, it's not interesting because it's actually Marxist. It's actually a Marxist mm -hmm. ideology. It comes out of Marxism. And so to the ex extent that Marxism has influenced that part of, um, that part of organizing, it's a problem because we have to reach people and we got to reach a lot of people and we got to reach people in their hearts and minds. And the thing about most people is that they don't really think about anything until you tell them. So most people in this country haven't thought about trans issues and they don't know what they think about trans issues. They literally don't. There's us and then there are people on the other side who are obsessed and they thought a lot about it, a lot about it, a lot about us and they have an idea to get rid of us. Everybody else is just kind of like trying to listen and figure it out and super confused. So what we have to do is to figure out how to talk 
to other people in a way that resonates about who we are, what our stories are, what we want out of life, um, so that we can build a world in which we fit in. Like, that's essential. Um, and that means figuring out how to stitch together these larger frameworks in which we can um, create and amplify the essential message of our humanity. Um, do you have one more question? There's usually sometimes people have one more question. I mean, um, if you want to bring anything else in. It's 2.30. Yeah, I'll say one, one other quick thing. I'm really lucky to live in New York City as a trans person, as, ter as not terrible, but as tough, that's the T word, as this place can be, um, to figure out how you're going to do it, what you're going to do, because it's been essential to trans history. And cities and places, just like people have memories. And because trans people have been here for such a long time, there's a memory of us and there are places and space for us. Um, and that's super important. Um, it's not enough, it needs to be more, but I'm really fortunate to live here and to be in that. And I recognize that um, and recognize that um, that New York is special. I think what I want is to make sure that there's a special place for trans people in Jackson, Mississippi, and Butte, Montana, <laughs> and um, you know, um, um, Feira de Santana in Brazil. Like, I want it to be everywhere. I want there to be space for us everywhere. Thank you so much for your words. Oh, thank you so much for listening and for asking. Questions. Really appreciate it.